On this bonus episode of Progressive Palaver, the group discusses Queensryche's Take Cover and other sundry items. Hi and welcome to Progressive Palaver, a group of lifelong friends and appreciators of music discussing the greatest progressive rock bands album by album. I'm Joe Beauclair and on this bonus episode of Progressive Palaver, I'm joined by my very good friend Ken Gregory as we briefly touch on Queensryche's Take Cover, as well as other random topics that come into our brain. You know, keep it, keep it open, keep it simple. So, hey, Ken, how are you, my friend? What up? Yeah, let's do this. All right. So we are in the middle of recording our Queensryche segment. And as sometimes happens on the palaver, significant portions of our membership have been called away to various other things. And rather than just take a complete night off... You and I thought it might be fun just to sort of get together and and have a really casual conversation about some of the sort of ancillary research materials that have been bouncing around our, our Palaver text stream over the last several weeks as we've been doing this. And, and so, you know, right off the, the, the top of the top of the episode here, I mentioned, and we'll get into Queensryche's take cover. Now, we have explicitly gone out of our way in other segments on other artists to not cover cover albums. <laughs> we, 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 have, we have declared, you know, all sorts of reasons and, and why we wouldn't do that, but it really came down to the fact that we just didn't want to. It detracts from the creative vision of the group. Usually, I mean, they, our MO is often f- tracking the creative vision of the group. Yeah. And, 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 and things that are done as party music or just to generate a little bit of revenue just kind of fall off our radar. They do. However, it was, you know, this was brought to our attention by our friend Tom. And, and I honestly don't recall if he didn't. No, well, no, I guess he knew this existed, but whatever. He was somehow drawn to the cover of Red Rain that is Mm -hmm. on this album. And Queensryche, indeed, covering Peter Gabriel's (laughs) Red Rain. Why would you not? And, um, you know, there was, there's been a lot of sort of conversation around this particular rendition of Red Rain. You know, does it have issues? Does it not have issues? Why does it have issues if it does? And I was sort of encouraged at that point. Now, I've I've actually owned this CD for any number of years. I've listened to it a few times when I first bought it, but it's not like I ever really think about bringing it out. But I was inspired based on the conversations that we were having. And so when I drove down to College Station this weekend, I 
pulled it out and I put it in. And to be honest, I never even looked at it and I had forgotten some of the tracks that were on here mm -hmm. and was mm -hmm. positively gobsmacked in, in the most fun way imaginable as this album sort of unfolded in front of me. It was, it was amazing. I mean, for it to open up with Welcome to the Machine was, it's one of my all-time favorite Pink Floyd songs. Mm -hmm. And I was just like, oh, that's right. This is on here. And it gets better from there. We can go right into Take Cover, and then we can go from there and see where the night takes us, if that's cool. I had no idea that this existed. So uh, it was released in 2007. And, you know, frankly, uh, a lot of heavier acts fell off my radar. And I, I, I didn't think, you know, what is Queen's Rank up to in 2007? Uh, it was, you know, a whole new era. I think Queen's Reich, just like any other band, makes albums because they have to, and they tour because they have to, and this is what they do for a living, and, and they're compelled to do it. And then they're also in a grown-up financial position to to be productive, and, and it's also a, a matter of ego. They have to be productive, and it gets to a point where. You've done so many albums, you've written so much, and the cover album happens. It just happens. <laughs> um, and I marvel over the licensing. I just, I just remember speaking to a jazz guitarist about 25 years ago uh, who covered Fly Like an Eagle. You know that classic rock song? Oh, sure. I like an eagle. Is that Steve Miller? Yeah. I think so, yeah. I think he gave all of his his revenue to Steve Miller for, for that. And maybe <laughs> there was a little bit left over. But <laughs> it amazes me uh, with the current licensing scheme that covers albums are even feasible. I, I, but, but, you know, I imagine when you're at least the stature of Queensryche, there's a break-even point where it all works out. Um, I'm going to say right off the bat, apropos of nothing, I'm a fan of Mindcrime 2. Okay. I, I don't know if we have any fans of Operation Mindcrime Part 2 in our palaver yet. I, I may be treading new ground, but take cover happened a year after mind crime too correct and th and this is not your your expected um michael wilton production or even you know any jackson production the guy that jeff tate was relying on through this period was jason slater Original bassist for Third Eye Blind, super producer, very gifted bass guitarist, and a man with an incredible work ethic to, to get through the production and writing of Mind Crime 2. And frankly, just, just to keep Jeff Tate's confidence. You know, j j just to stay in Jeff's good graces through this very touchy period with the band, 
Um, the way that he pulled that off in conjunction with Queensryche second guitarist Mike Stone is is really impressive. And 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 whether or not this comes to a level of prominence like the original Mind Crime or Empire or anything else in their catalog, it, it really does not. But the fact that they were as prolific and consistent and professional as they were, they pulled it off. And, and it's interesting you talk about that because that's, you know, one of the things that I've been sort of digging around in is that era, you know, the, the, the mind crime to the entrance of Jason Slater and Mike Stone, the influence of, of Slater and Mike Stone, um, on the band and, you know, just how all of that came about. It, it's, it, you know, it, it's interesting in ultimately sort of the, the lead up to the events, obviously of, of 2012. Um, and, and, you know, I'll, I'll say when we first started talking about doing Queensryche months ago, I pulled out, and listened to Mind Crime 2, and I, I didn't hate it. I I have listened to it a couple times since, and I some it's kind of hit or miss. Sometimes I really like it, and sometimes I'm like, yeah, that's okay. But again, I've I've heard and learned a little bit more about it, and I'm I'm curious to to go in there. But we've sort of made the the conscious decision here at the Palaver that we won't be going that far into the catalog officially. So that's, that's, you know, this is an opportunity for us to sort of talk around that tonight without maybe going full blown into it. And for the uninitiated who, who, who might be kind enough to follow the palaver, but don't follow American progressive metal, Queensryche was a five person band, uh, a key, key songwriter, Mr. Garmo, had left by this point, and the band was, shall we say, rudderless. And the path that singer extraordinaire Jeff Tate took to plot his destiny and keep the act productive was, was to bring in outside members, uh, producers who not only produce, but producers who write, wrote. Um, it's, it was entirely unexpected from the fan base, but it injected a lot of energy into a band that maybe would have broken up otherwise. Yeah, I think that's, that's part of what makes this, this segment so interesting is, you know, they, they were doing things differently. And I think, you know, I think you make a very valid point that in the absence during this period of, you know, what appears to be from the outside, Jeff Tate's force of will, yeah, who knows what we would have. But we made the decision to not go any further than Promised Land simply because from a, if nothing else, a sonic perspective after Promised Land here in the noun frontier is, is almost unlistenable. And, you know, we've heard people 
hypothesize as to why that is and what they were trying to do and were they, you know, looking for what was at that point, you know, the the current sound and, and everything else. But the fact of the matter is, you know, it's not really what we came to to the band looking for or wanting or expecting. And so take that for what it is. Um, mm-hmm. But it, mm-hmm. it's it's a very interesting period. And like I said, it ultimately culminates in a very, very sad, you know, event <laughs> that that I think maybe we can we can perhaps get to after we go through through this album. But yeah, this this album seems to be much like Operation Mindcrime 2, very much driven by Jason Slater and Mike Stone. Yep. Yeah. Uh, now, J- uh, Jeff Tate is writing <clears throat> probably all of the words as much as possible. And he is clearly engaged in the, you know, the song sequencing and the, 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 the as far as Mind Crime 2 goes, I mean, I mean the storyline and, and, and the entire creative process. And in this, no doubt, he he's picking from his era of cover songs. Yeah. In the, in, the, in, the, in the take cover. So he's engaged as much as he possibly can be. But if you trace the origins of the band, as skilled as he was on, on, on keyboards, he was not, with his fingers, as virtuosic as, as it took to write for this band. Right. You needed someone on the level of Chris DeGarmo. You needed someone as aggressive as Michael Wilton. You needed someone, you know, in that guitar heavy metal vein to pull this off. And Jeff Tate not being a guitarist wasn't going to do that. So uh, uh, that, that, that's, you know, really how we got hooked up with Mike Stone and, and Slater. Ne- needing collaborative, if not somewhat submissive guitarists to, to, to push forward in that direction. At, in the Palaver, we have this theme that a band needs a trio of songwriters. That's true. We we do and Joe, I, did you, I think you pioneered that with yes, <laughs> yes, sort of naturally presented that theory because every time two members of Yes lock themselves in a room, an album of questionable quality came out the other end. <laughs> well, this is why I love. Yeah, it could it, that particular case could have been John Anderson with Steve Howe. Or Trevor Raven. (laughs) Right, right, right. And you didn't want them unedited. You needed a foil or an editor, another creative force to come in there and make sense of what was being delivered. And I I present that um, the dramatic early 80s heavy metal coming out of Chris DeGarmo alone, like Take Hold of the Flame or Queen of the Reich, needed some sprucing up to take them long term and and jeff tate brought in some of that yeah but then they had this creative foil who was mike wilton and and whenever he comes in as a third person in a track it's like sparkle dust right close it up it like like walk in the shadows was the three of them and 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 I, i hear that you know michael wilton groovy guitar on the left side that, that, that makes it all gel together. And, uh, 
that that is the Queensryche formula that, that that took them through Rage for Order, Operation Mind Crime, Empire, um, and then what was after that? Promised Land. Promised Land. Yes. Yeah, that yeah, wasn't so bad. And then I think it became less organic. And they didn't want to work so hard to edit each other. And maybe it just wasn't even possible at that point. And it it seemed like it seemed like a wise decision for Christy Garmo to leave at risk of somehow losing his relevance or losing his sanity. That's a really long way of explaining how a very original progressive metal band arrives at doing classic rock covers. Yeah. So maybe we can, you know, stick to some of our form and I'll give the particulars for this record and then we can kind of quickly go through it because it's, it's fascinating. Yeah. So take cover was released on November 13th, 2007 on the label Rhino produced by the aforementioned Jason Slater, Mike Stone, Michael Wilton, and Kenny Neems or Nimes. The personnel uh, attributed to this record are Jeff Tate on vocals, Michael Wilton, lead and rhythm guitars and production, Mike Stone, lead guitar on tracks 1 through 10, rhythm guitar and production, Eddie Jackson on bass, and Scott Rockenfield on drums. Additional personnel listed are Kelly Gray, guitars on track 11, which happens to be a live track, and uh, Leopoldo Larson on keyboards. Specifically, I believe he's credited on Welcome to the Machine. Speaking of the track listing, Welcome to the Machine, originally performed by Pink Floyd, Heaven on Their Minds, originally from the rock opera Jesus Christ Superstar. Absolutely spectacular. Almost Cut My Hair, originally by Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. For What It's mm -hmm. Worth, by That's Buffalo funny. Springfield. For the Love of Money, by the OJs. Innuendo, by Queen. Neon Nights, by Black Sabbath. Synchronicity 2, from The Police. Red Rain, from Peter Gabriel. Odyssea, originally performed by Carlo Morale. And Bullet the Blue Sky. This is the live track um, and much in the same vein as U2 made a lot of, of um, ruckus with Bullet the Blue Sky from their live album Rattle and Hum. Take Cover is the 10th studio album by Seattle-based progressive metal band Queensryche, released on November 13, 2007. It consists of cover versions. The idea to release an album of cover songs came from a game of Name the Riff guitarists Michael Wilton and Mike Stone would play during sound checks. The band members agreed to each choose two songs to record for the album. Its release was announced by the band on August 28, 2007. After its first week of release, the album entered the Billboard Top 200 chart at number 173 with sales of 5,500 copies. Their cover of Pink Floyd's Welcome to the Machine was the only was released as, as the album's only single. This was the band's last album to feature Stone, 
who left in 2009. And I have given the historical context already. This is a 2007 recording that closely followed the 2006 recording of the uh, Operation Mindcrime 2 album. It is the last album to feature Mike Stone, who was injected into the Tribe recordings in 03, and he made it into some live recordings along the way, and I guess three studio recordings, if I have that right. So it was a four-year period yep. for Mike Stone on, on guitar. And what makes him interesting is that uh, he's more Gen X. He's just a tad bit older than you and I, Joe. He, he's not the slightly more baby boomer generation of Jeff Tate. Chris DeCarmel, Mike Wilton, Eddie Jackson, or Scott Rockenfeld. And and I don't know if you've if you've gone down the wiki rabbit hole with regards to Mike Stone, but there is, and again, I think this will ultimately tie into perhaps later conversations, but there's a an interesting quote from Michael Wilton um, with regards to the exit of Mike Stone from Queensryche. So there's a there's this quote here, and again, it it appears to be Michael. It's not necessarily clear. Well, we can look at this. The the uh, yeah, okay. So this is very clearly a court declaration from Michael Wilton. So again, more court documents from 2012, but this pertains to Mike Stone leaving the band. Quote. After this tour, I received a phone call from our guitarist, Mike Stone, letting me know he was being fired from the band. I had no knowledge of this or that we were even considering letting him go. I immediately called Jeff Tate and Susan Tate and requested a band meeting. It was at this meeting that we were told that Mike Stone was being replaced by Miranda Tate's, Jeff Tate's daughter, new boyfriend, Parker Lundgren. They said that Mike Stone was making too many grand demands and we could hire Parker Lundgren for cheap. We would be making more money. I had never heard Parker Lundgren play, nor was I or the rest of the band included in this major decision. Again, there was division in the band as our voice on most band decisions was being stifled. So, mm -hmm. ugh, it's just... <laughs> you, know. you, threatened, you threatened to keep 2012 to the end of the episode, but we just cannot contain ourselves. It, it's, I mean, it's, it's so terrible. Like these are, these are court declarations and it's just, it's so, oh, it's painful to read, but we're not there yet. We are in 2007 and by all accounts, we're having a grand old time. So there are little blurbs. On on each of the of the ten tracks, actually each of the eleven tracks, and I can read them as we go through. So for "Welcome to the Machine," Michael Wilton says, "A Pink Floyd classic that I used to listen to over and over until the record grooves wore out." Yep. Which you know, uh, we've 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 commented here on the palaver that you know my fascination as a young man with Pink Floyd's Wish You Were Here was very deep. Wish You Were Here was very purposefully the very first CD I ever purchased. And in fact, long before I ever owned a CD player, 
but I had decided that 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 was the the first CD I was going to buy, and I still have that very CD. And Welcome to the Machine is spectacular. And you know, this is this is a I find this to be a very interesting cover version of it. Um, a lot of the vocals on this record seem like someone has Jeff Tate's throat kind of in a very tight grip. There doesn't <laughs> seem to be a lot of room for Jeff to be singing. It's it's kind of weird. And it's it's bizarre to sort of think of like Eddie Jackson in particular playing Roger Waters bass lines, but it it all kind of works somehow. I think they're able to I, I feel like they're able to really capture a an appropriate feeling. I'm not going to say it's, you know, consistent with the original, but it's appropriate. And and I just love this song so much and I enjoy it here as well. I'm going to call attention to Progressive Palaver, episode 88, Pink Floyd, part 10. Wish you were here, where Tom and I have at it over this song. (laughs) 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 And I I accused uh, Pink Floyd of creating the uh, 1970s equivalent of clickbait with this song, Just, just, just to reel in. The disturbed young men, male boys in their audience. Um, Guilty as charged. It's an angst song, right? It, it, it's for oh, the yeah. angsty male. Yeah, yeah. And and while I'm not a big fan of the word, at 16, I was as angsty as they come. Exactly, exactly. The only thing that Queensryche does, interestingly enough, is that there is saxophone bringing this to a much more adult level. Uh, I don't think I there's can... actually saxophone. I think it's a keyboard. The only, the only really? instrument, the only uh, musician credited in the CD booklet is Leopoldo Larson on keyboards. So I, I, I think it's just a sample, but I don't know that for a fact. That is wild because there was a period in Queensryche lore where Jeff actually brought out the saxophone. That's true. Um, it was during Promised Land, actually. So who knows? Maybe it's maybe it is. But there's there's nothing that I've come across to suggest that that is in fact the case. Okay. All right. That's going to require some research. Well, good luck with that. <laughs> While the research department is doing their thing, we can move on to the the second. Now, this is. This is the track when I was listening to this the other night driving down here. I had completely forgotten was here. Paul and I have bantered about Jesus Christ Superstar on the Palaver. I think throughout all of our episodes, every now and again, it will pop up and, you know, we'll sort of compare notes. And it's it's well documented. There are two sort of definitive versions of this. There is the original, um, I think they call it the original cast recording, which features Ian Gillen and other notables. Um, yes. Particularly, that was the version that my family had. That's what I grew up with. That's what I still listen to. And, and there is the original motion picture soundtrack, which I don't even know who the hell's on there. Uh, I've heard it once or twice. I don't really care for it nearly as much. And that is the version that Paul likes. 
So it's one of those things. I'm driving down the road, doo, 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 and I'm listening to Welcome to the Machine. Doo, 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 life's great. And the guitar riff opens for Heaven on Their Minds, and it's unmistakable in terms of the notes being played, but obviously it sounds wildly different. And it's like, wait a second, are they going to play? Yes. Oh, they are going to yes, play. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> Which is, you know, it's it's a it was a fun little moment. And so the the blurb here, and this is great. This is from Mike Stone. Quote: It's getting hot in the kitchen, and Judas can't take the heat. This is one of my favorite songs from JC Superstar. I have always wanted to hear a rocked up version of this tune, and now I can. Mm-hmm. Very fun. Wait, who said that? Mike Stone. Oh, excellent. Excellent. So I've got to say, as much as I love this song, I don't think Jeff Tate presents himself particularly well. So one of the things, you know, the original cast recording with Ian Gillen and Mary Head is just phenomenal as Judas. Those two trading off just freaking slay it. And, and, and I have to say, listening to this, the one thing is... Jeff Tate doesn't doesn't really present himself nearly as strongly as as Murray Head does in the original. I think one of the things that I like about it is the intense emotional quality that Murray brings to these uh, into these performances, and this one in particular, like you know, in in Mike Stone's quote. It's getting hot in the kitchen and Judas can't take the heat. That's true. And and Judas in, in the form of Murray Head is absolutely frantic in, in that original cast recording. And, mm-hmm. you know, Jeff Tate could have let go. Jeff Tate has the chops to really just cream this, and he doesn't. It's a little disappointing. Okay. Um, slightly different spin. Murray Head is delivering the frantic Judas, and Judas is trying to negotiate with Jesus. Jesus, you are possibly my best friend ever. And when we met you, we called you a man. And now you're talking like the son of God. I'm freaked out. Everyone else is freaked out. And the law is after you. And I'm here to survive. And I'm not going down with your ship, you fucking lunatic. <laughs> right? He's yeah. negotiating with Jesus, telling him what the problem is. And Murray had really delivers the frantic negotiation. Whereas Jeff takes a very smooth approach and kind of delivers it straight on without the character acting. Regardless, I agree with Mike Stone. It's really fun to have a rocked up version of this. This is a great place early in, in our review of the tracks to be frank about what's going on here. Queensryche came out as a wildly produced 80s metal band, and now they're in the phase where they've completely conformed to, to dry 2000 era production. Yep. And many folks will say it's okay, but they just stood have, should have stuck to their guns 
and stuck to the big 80s production. For this song, it would have worked because oh yeah it's because it's a musical theater piece it's huge it's meant to be huge yeah absolutely but once 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 they got into the jason slater area and they committed to the more grungy dry in your face production they lost some of that sparkle and ambience and and ironically according to the cd booklet this is actually produced by mike stone he should have known better <laughs> okay all right oh so the production credits go from track to track they do yeah so so welcome to the machine was produced by jason slater heaven on their minds produced by mike stone third track almost cut my hair um jeff tate tells us quote i thought this would be a great song for us to do musically the guitar and vocal harmonies are amazing and lyrically it's right on the money it was a lot of fun arranging this song i this song doesn't honestly do much for me either way it's just okay cool whatever and it was um it was produced by michael wilton and mike stone to continue our past discussion i was well into adulthood when i understood the lyrics i had, i'd heard this as a youth i had seen crosby stills and nash trio when i was younger i really enjoyed the music and this particular tune, I never looked at the lyrics or heard them in such a way that I understood it. And then somehow as an adult, I understood the idea of implied solidarity, where this character almost cut his hair and he didn't do it because of an ambiguous bond with his culture, uh -huh. with his brethren <laughs> joe you've got a full head of hair right now i do you do you do you know and you've con contemplated cutting it but it's kind of fun it's it's a new identity and it even in our advanced middle age we we know that it makes a statement it does um i will cut my hair at some point in the very near future but it is fun not gonna lie I like the tune. I like what they did with it. It bears saying that they took liberties with a couple of chords, right? In the chorus somewhere. Yeah. There's something going on there that's, that's really original. Some will like it and, and, and some won't. I'm challenged by it. I like it, but I, 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 I think some listeners will just hit fast forward. <laughs> I, I never hit fast forward, but it's interesting to have a, a David Crosby song right in front of a Stephen Stills song, even though it's Buffalo Springfield, but whatever. It's all good, because we then move into For What It's Worth, produced by Jason Slater. And Jeff Tate, again, tells us, when we're touring, a lot of radio morning shows invite us to the studio to talk about the tour and have us play a couple of songs on acoustic guitars. This is one of the songs we like to throw in every once in a while. It really does show. It shows their age. <laughs> I mean, it, <laughs> it, it shows it shows the powerful influence of the '60s, even on an '80s '80s metal band. It's just that good of a song. Agreed. It's. I mean, it's almost. Can we call it a standard? I mean. We have to. We have to. It happened in 1967, but throughout our childhood, it was just canon. 
it, it was it was it was it was just like amazing grace or or <laughs> I mean it, it was just Americana Americana. Now looking ahead at the the quote for the next track, this is just fascinating. We have "For the Love of Money" by the OJ's, as we've already discussed, and Eddie Jackson says, "Quote." One of the coolest bass riffs that I could play without having to pay for it. <laughs> without having to pay for it. <laughs> Would you believe? I mean, th this, this comes out of the Empire's book that, that Eddie Jackson is the, the prankster, the jokester in the group. And if he's not just humming along, making wisecracks, then there's truly something wrong. Because that, <laughs> that is his mo, and, and 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 I'm so glad they gave him a quote. Yeah, just I think that's awesome. This is, you know, un unfortunately, this is a song that is tainted for me because of its association with The Apprentice, which, you know, it, but it's in in terms of its inclusion here. Quite unexpected. Uh, I find it to be an oddly refreshing breath of, of air in the middle of all of this. You know, it, it's incongruous, but it's it's a good sort of incongruous. You know, it's, it's the sort of unexpected thing that you want out of life. Sort of like, I don't know, Marillion doing Britney Spears, for instance. <laughs> Wait, I'm sorry. Remind me, what is that? Oh, don't you remember? Merlion has on occasion, and in fact, they did in 07 in Amsterdam, in in Holland. They play "Toxic" by Britney Spears. Oh, okay, okay, all right, all right. How how am I not surprised? <laughs> I don't know. Oh, and this track was produced by Mike Stone. So take that for what it's worth. Yeah, it is a good baseline. It is a good song. I I don't know that they captured. The original essence, but they weren't even trying to capture the original essence. Yeah, I would agree with that. You know, th this is where the late grunge ethos kind of paves over some of the subtleties. <laughs> so you, so, so you, you don't get the jangliness of the, of the original. And I'm going to say the same thing for the next song. You know, um, Innuendo by Queen is not one of my favorite queen songs i would it's some yeah it, yeah it, it's 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 like yeah you wanted to hike the grand tetons and you did but did you like it enough to go back you know innuendo is one of those tedious songs it's like a tedious workout that you want to do once a year but it's not like you remember it fondly well, Michael Wilton has a different perspective on that, Ken. <sighs> Michael Wilton says, quote, a breathtaking masterpiece that I have listened to for many years. Innuendo was produced by Jason Slater and the CD credits Leopoldo Larson with the orchestration. I I'm with you. I, you know, I have a very sort of complicated relationship with um with queen in general 
I, I there there are a very few very specific things that I like a lot, and the rest I just really am not too familiar with. Uh, innuendo falls into that category, but you know, again, it doesn't. The, this middle part of the record, it, it doesn't excite me in any way, shape, or form. But I don't skip it. I don't. You know, it just is what it is. Cool. Glad they had some fun. Now the next one I love. Yeah. So so neon knights. So you've got. Queensryche doing Black Sabbath, which just seems appropriate in a lot of ways. I got to tell you, the live video from Mindcrime 2, where uh, Jeff and Ronnie James Dio are on stage together, and oh, they're doing Dio? the chase, really? and they're singing at each other very violently. And it's it's very Les Mis esque. Wow, I haven't I mean, seen that. I mean, it's it it it's it's Jalvan Jean and Javert <laughs> from Les Mis, <laughs> and they're they're just singing over each other, just freaking out. And and I'm so glad they did that. Now, you know whether or not it was profitable or sustainable or memorable to your average metalhead, I don't give a damn. It was one of the most. <laughs> It was one of the coolest things I'd seen in metal personally in a long time. I'm going to have to check that out. Um, so Neon Knights was produced by Jason Slater, and Mike Stone provides the quote. He says, when I was a teenager, the Heaven and Hell album was like a heavy metal instruction manual. This song was chapter one. Personally, I was more of a, a paranoid fan, more of a Children of the Grave fan. I loved Ozzy's Speak of the Devil album. And I, I, when it came to Dio, I loved uh, the actual Heaven and Hell song will always be amazing with me because it's got the slow parts, but it also turns into a punk rock, punk rock song and it has the fast part. And I love that. This one, Neon Knights, slipped beyond my radar, but it so rocking right from the beginning i can't deny it whenever i hear it it just it just starts the groove it stays in the groove it, it's friggin' perfect yep i'm not gonna argue with you and then we get into the interesting bits synchronicity two now yeah synchronicity one of those albums much like you know albums we've talked about on the palaver Invisible Touch, and so, you know, albums that just sort of at that time in the world transcended all boundaries. Everyone knew this record. Everyone listened to this record. And uh, so here we have them doing Synchronicity 2, produced by Michael Wilton, and Scott Rockenfield provides our quote. And this is interesting. I need to go back and listen to the original. Uh, sure. But he says, the police have always been a huge influence on my playing. And when presented with the challenge of performing something by drummer Stuart Copeland, the opportunity was undeniable. That's an interesting statement to make. I have stated publicly many, many times that in so much as I have a favorite drummer, it is without a doubt Stuart Copeland. Awesome. So I totally get that, but I can't say I ever would have necessarily like 
just on the surface, when I listen to this, I don't necessarily hear Scott doing Stuart Copeland. So I need to go back and, and listen and pay more attention to the, the drumming on this original. But it's interesting. I think this is one of the songs on this record where Jeff maybe lets loose a little bit more vocally, which is very cool. And, you know, I, I don't know. It just, it, it's a, it's a certainly a vocal contrast to the next track. Stuart Copeland is known for bringing the reggae to the white man and kind of taking a bunch of off kilter ideas and normalizing them for pop radio. Yep. Now, by the time they got to this point and this particular song, he's driving the ship more like a typical rock drummer. But but that's not to say that he's not up to his usual tricks. It's just more conventional than your average Stuart Copeland. Right. Jeff makes everything a little dark and spooky, and that's who he is. It's quoted in the book and other, other sources that he was more into prog rock, Peter Gabriel, all kinds of artsy stuff. And yet, it was almost destiny that his voice would lead him to progressive metal because that's where he's right at home. Yep. And even with a song like this, that's got, it's got the whole Rice Krispies things in there. <laughs> this song's a comedy waiting to happen, right? <laughs> but, but, but it's still, it's still, it's still, this is the chocolate Rice Krispies with, 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 with Jeff singing. It's always a little darker than the original. <laughs> oh God, I can't believe you just said that. <laughs> <laughs> always, always a different flavor with Jeff Tate, right? You're just, you're just not going to get that pop kiltered. That's true. Yes. So we can move on then to the the track that prompted this entire episode. Okay. Red Rain, produced by Mike Stone and Michael Wilton, and Scott Rockenfield again provides our quote. Peter Gabriel has always been a leader in music and artistic statement, and this song and respective album will always be a defining moment for me. I'm not gonna, you know, take issue with that. So, so there was a lot of conversation in um, in the group around this particular song, whether the vocals were was the was the term pitchy thrown around uh you know there there's a lot of questioning on certain sides you um leapt to the defense of this song in particular yep. rating it you know very high on your all-time list of all songs and challenged our our podcast mates to provide some evidence to support their conclusions. A conversation that is still ongoing, I'd like to add. This is my forum to say, Jeff sings in an operatic style with a lot of vibrato and a lot of interpretation. And he's not using auto-tune and he's not singing in a manner where the, 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 the pitches have some kind of, you know, consistent perfection. He, 
he, he he's very expressive. He's very breathy. He's got a lot of range of of up and down and pitch and and modulation and everything he does. He is like his own walking stereo chorus, right? He just yeah. He just, he, You're on fire with the uh, metaphors from similes tonight. <laughs> <laughs> He's an Ibanez pedal kind of waiting to happen, man. So, yeah, th- that's Jeff Tate. So I, I, I don't understand why, after all these years of Jeff listening to Jeff Tate with, with, with his wild vibrato, that our brethren would suddenly be, you know, oh, why did he interpret peter gabriel that way because that's 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 how he sings you know otherwise he wouldn't be himself so um can 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 i posit a hypothesis here sure as as the neophyte and you can feel free to shoot me down but is part of it peter gabriel's singing and and i don't want to use the word range but you know the the area and and way in which peter sings is really not in any way, shape, or form suited to what Jeff does. It, it's almost like trying to take, say, you know, and this isn't going to be quite as good as yours, but trying to drive a Maserati off-road. It's not going to work out perfectly. <laughs> um, maybe if your analogy had different gearing and different... Um, road clearance sure and be, be, because it comes down to the biology and the math of it all um the voice is going to have different break points just the raw full tone versus where the falsetto is and and, and how the break is managed and, and, and jeff is just the master of having this operatic fluidity between the the full voice and the and the and the, and the falsetto whereas Peter is a break man. Yeah. He's very much full voice until he, until he pops and he hits that very obvious deliberate falsetto. So they 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 treat their break very differently. Cool. Well yeah, said, yeah. Ken. They're just different singers and 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 when you take Jeff doing an 80s pop song in a Peter Gabriel style, you you know, you have to know that he's doing it his way. Yeah. So the the album, I guess, officially finishes up with Odyssea and produced by Jason Slater. Again, orchestration by Leopoldo Larson. Jeff Tate tells us, I really like this song because there's a lot for a singer to sink his teeth into. Plus, I got a chance to sing in Italian, which was interesting considering I don't speak a word of it. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know where this comes from, but I think this is. I mean, is is this literally an and an opera piece because it fits really well with Jeff. Like this just seems to work in, you know, a lot of sort of natural ways. I don't know Carlo Marale, but let's see what we can do. An Italian singer, songwriter and musician, uh, not necessarily pigeonholed into opera though. Interesting. So it, it could just be like, you know, uh, a Michael Buble type pop song in Italy. <laughs> singer, singer, guitarist, composer, songwriter, active 1971 to present. So uh, this 69 year old man is uh, apparently still uh, 
still in the business. Well, there you go. This is the most efficiently we've reviewed an album. This is this is the last song is coming up very quickly. It it really is. <laughs> And and quite frankly, it's gone on a little bit longer than I would have thought it would. But still, <laughs> and and that last song, as you mentioned, Ken, is sort of like a bonus because it's track number eleven, and it's a live track. Bullet the blue sky. We have Kelly Gray and Michael Wilton as credited with uh, playing on this because this was live. I guess Kelly Gray was in the band at that point. And Jeff Tate says, this is one of the rare times that we played a cover live. I don't remember exactly when or where we played this, but I do remember that we were locked in. Everything came together just right musically, and I evidently had a lot on my mind that night because I wasn't shy with my social commentary. And I'm glad that Jeff calls it out because one of the things that I, I've always had sort of a a, a cringe reaction to again in the rattle and hum version is you know bono's sort of extrapolation during that breakdown part and jeff tate embodies every ounce of of pompousness in this and you know we all know that when i'm at a live show i am not a huge fan of you know diversions like this i consider mm -hmm. them to be a monumental waste of my very precious time and to have them then be recorded and sold back to me is even worse <laughs> but I, I i will agree that they do it, it's a it's a very interesting way to sort of capture the spirit of that most well-known version from Rattle and Hum. So I, I get it. It makes a certain amount of sense, but I would not necessarily have included it myself. I have questions. What are your questions? I think you can help me. It's embarrassing because I saw you two at least two or three times in the late 80s. Mm-hmm. And I should know this, but what exactly is Bullet the Blue Sky about? Okay, Bullet the Blue Sky, I believe it was on the Joshua Tree album. Bono was, I believe, I think it was a first-hand account, but it, it it's certainly an account of, of being near some, um, you know military type fighting in central america i want to say honduras maybe something like that that was going on at the time uh, my guess would be if bono was actually there it was probably some humanitarian type situation and bullets were flying around and apparently it made a very strong impression on uh mr houston i'll accept that now what did jeff tate do differently because his commentary is starkly different yeah so you know uh, so so the 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 commentary that's in in bono's version and actually, i actually i want to say it's it's probably in the recorded version as well as the live version it's just a lot more vigorous in the live version you know has to do with you know 
the influence of foreign money and all this kind of good stuff, right? Um, I have no idea what the fuck Jeff is spouting off about. He's talking about offending some person who has a limited view of what being a man is and can't think outside of his box. And I, it's just, it's just a bunch of nonsense as far as I'm concerned. Oh, but he does it very convincingly. He does step outside that box. Don't step outside that box. And his screams. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's funny because we're sometimes dismissive of later era, Jeff Tate. But his screams are pretty much right on the money compared to the, you know, the late '80s Jeff Tate. I mean, I mean, it's it, it's a nice performance. It, it really is, and like I said, it's it's remarkable in the way that section in particular sort of mirrors that section from Rattle and Hum, even though Jeff is is commenting on completely different things. So you know, take it for what it's worth. Mm-hmm. Now, I do feel obligated to mention what has to be one of the greatest covers of all time. I just want to mention the Queensryche cover of Scarborough Fair, which is to this day absolutely delightful. I think it's a perfect example, Ken, of you know what you were talking about earlier, where the huge dramatic production really lends the Queensryche flavor to a classic song. And it's just a, a an absolutely spectacular rendition, in my opinion. That was a very quick transition. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Wait, you exited U2 land and you took me to Simon and Garfunkel? I did. Wait, I, I, I'm, I'm still in U2 land. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> um, okay. It is rare although not not unheard of for our pop artists to improvise or vamp yep or 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 do this so it's remarkable that bono pulled this off in the original and i'm impressed how jeff tate interpreted this in his version you know obviously i'm 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 a fan of of jazz and i'm a fan of improvisation and and i love it when someone can take something as repetitive as bullet the blue sky and make it gripping yeah as, as as this is i guess most bands have some version of it they have that one song where they can just let loose and repeat and repeat repeat and just build intensity um this definitely has has a place in the u2 repertoire and it's fascinating that queens dared to go there yeah um what what this means to me and i'm looking at the bono lyrics and i'm looking at a transcription of the jeff tate lyrics i'm just gonna say it that that the the nation the u.s and 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 our military and our capabilities it's like a caged animal we we we, by our nature of being born and running and jumping and going to school and becoming adults are always you know aspiring to do more and more and do better uh but our 
offensive defensive capabilities could destroy us all and 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 do hideous things to us and all our lives we've been watching (laughs) even before we were born in the 50s when people hid under their desks and and, in 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 school drills we 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 knew that by that point the armies of the world in u.s russia and china had become caged fucking animals that were capable of fucking up so many things and rather than being our best we are just navigating this pent-up violence (laughs) and i do like the fact that jeff dares to go there and this is just uh an odd segue to to what they did next which was american soldier where right jeff finally after years uh sat down with his dad and his wife and and made notes on some of his dad's stories and turned it into an album and so this is this is personal to where jeff was in his 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 life he, you know he was able to dabble in artificial intelligence and the digital takeover of our society and in the warning and rage for order and he was able to dabble in politics and violence with operation mind crime and then you see in the later years he gets really creepy with with political themes and military themes and 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 this is right up his alley i I think bullet the blue sky really speaks volumes for where jeff tate arrived as a person and as an artist outstanding summary ken i really like that It's always nice when when you're able to sort of make sense of things that I'm just not willing to spend the brain power on. (laughs) But but I really do. I do like that. And and it's it's interesting. And, you know, all of this kind of ties in. I, I like how you pointed ahead towards American soldier. Because ultimately, you know, everything here, uh, as we as we already discussed, all lines point to that fateful night in Brazil in, in 2012. And, you know, there are some, there are some peculiar band decisions that are made along the way. Um, you know, and, and, and again, there are albums that we're not necessarily going to, to talk about, but the fact of the matter is, you know, this is still, you know, Queensryche. And this is four-fifths of, of the band that we love so much and provided such joy to us. And, and I know DeGarmo has left and, you know, there, there seems to be this approaching middle-aged sort of anguish over who are we and what are we doing and what are we going to do next and, and everything else. And I, I, I get all that, but, mm-hmm. but when you read these court, you know, dis, dip, dip, depositions and you had sent us the one from, I guess it was the, the guitar tech guy. And, and, you know, I, I, I'd known about the story. I wasn't aware that, you know, these depositions and these court statements were so readily available for all to see and, and reading, you know, someone's, just words that appear to be, you know, just a dispassionate description of, 
of this event. And it, it, on the one hand, it boggles the imagination that this could have happened. But on the other hand, you're like, well, this is, you know, this is a sworn statement. So this must have happened. And, and you, when you read the, the stories and, and, you know, thanks to you, we're going to have the opportunity and maybe that episode's already come out to, to speak to the authors of the Queensryche biography. Uh, but by all accounts, you know, these sorts of, of frictions had been building for quite some time, you know, uh, uh, across the band. And DeGarmo left. DeGarmo was brought back in. DeGarmo said, I don't really want to do this again, <laughs> you know, and, and, and left. And, you know. <laughs> it's so funny because, you know, some PR person in the works managed to spin that as a reunion like long after he was gone, <laughs> they were still hanging their hat on Degarma, whether they wanted to or not. But yeah, it, it's it's just, it's just it's sad to to read these these accounts of this and and to to look at this and you know I I'm, I'm going to I'm going to have to fess up here because I've been walking around with the chip on my shoulder for the last you know several months because uh, I, I follow Queensrÿche and and Wilton on Twitter. And, uh, you know, there's, there's just something about the, the way that <laughs> that band sort of presents themselves now that just doesn't sit well with me. And I was going to say all these, yeah, I wasn't going to say, but I was thinking all these, frankly, unkind thoughts about Wilton and everything else. But watching Operation Live Crime last night, Michael Wilton hasn't changed at all. He's gotten older like the rest of us. But he's fundamentally the same guy he's always been. He's just, you know, he's he's on that stage left spot now. And and he's the one who's, for better or for worse, the face of the band. So, you know, but but he's not he's not fundamentally any different than he, he ever has been, I don't think. Right. I, I think I mentioned this in the previous episode. I've I've become more of a Michael Wilton fan realizing primarily that he interjects something incredible into the writing yeah when it's when it's Degarmo and tate and then just seeing even what he creates uh before the storm you know just just that 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 was one of his and speak the word is one of his and he injects so much energy and fun into this act and and it's a shame how divisive the the mind crime two stuff because he only showed up in i think one track on mind crime two both michael and wilton and eddie jackson i mean had had minimal input there but i love it when they do show up yeah absolutely i know because i was sort of the architect of of our strategy with regards to to Queensryche. So I know why we made the decision to to cover the segment that we're going to cover and not go beyond it. But there very clearly is a lot of of interesting history here. And it's unfortunate ultimately that it it wound up the way it did and you know it, it is what it is. I, I meant to look. I, my understanding is Jeff Tate is is touring right now, performing Rage and Empire in their entirety. All the uh, you know the the Yes album 
concert tours that they used to do back in the early 2000s? Yeah, unfortunately, in the fall, uh, Jeff was at the Keswick Theater in Glenside, PA, just prior to us launching all of this research, and I just was not focused or available, and I, 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 I you know, I wish I had. Maybe had we been in the thick of it, I would have you know, made all the arrangements and adjusted my schedule and been there. So I'm, I was sad to check out his schedule and, and realize that the only dates available to me now are ridiculously far away, Connecticut or something. Yeah, there's Albany, New York, Florida, Memphis, Portland, Oregon, um, Indiana, and New York. Well, I don't know. Do you want to fly to Indiana and meet there? <laughs> what, what's it's only Indiana. How expensive could that be? How expensive indeed. It's a Friday night, so I'd have to rework my kid's schedule, but we could do that. <laughs> um, I can get to Memphis, Tennessee for a Sunday night show fairly easily. Actually, that's coming up fairly quickly. And that actually is a weekend. I don't have the kids. I could Oops, sorry about that. I could actually make that, but I don't know that I'm going to because, you know, irrationally, Jeff Tate's physical appearance frightens me right now. Oh, <laughs> cut it out. <laughs> it's, he's got the bald head and the beard. It's just, ah, it's too much. I can't take it. But anyway, um, yeah. You, the, you weren't at the 25... Uh, 25th year anniversary of Mindcrime, were you? I went with Paul. No, I was not, sadly. Okay. Jeff was harmless. <laughs> and, you know, perhaps I'll just, instead, I'll put in Operation Live Crime again and just revel in the absolute joy that is that performance. I'm so glad that I do have a DVD version of that now. So I think that's spectacular. But anyway, this was a, this was a fun little you know exercise tonight. Just a, a little light ninety minute conversation, which for us is light these days. <laughs> but but Ken, I appreciate you you know you know keeping the, the the window open and and having a little little conversation about a a fun little album that was unexpected in a lot of ways. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Progressive Palaver. As always, we've enjoyed sharing the conversation with you, and we look forward to your thoughts, comments, feedback, and questions. You can reach us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. We are at ProgPala on all of those, or search for Progressive Palaver. You're welcome to email us. Our email address is progpala, that's P-R-O-G-P-A-L-A, at gmail.com. You're welcome to email us. Our email address is progpala, that's P-R-O-G-P-A-L-A, at gmail.com. Progressive Palaver is available for subscription and download on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, or presumably wherever you find your podcasts. And we are, as always, hosted on SoundCloud. So until next time, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.